Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Well, if you had any questions about uh, when we were going to see real activity as presidential campaigns get underway, this is the week that you would want to look at. We had two candidates announced, of course, for the GOP uh, nomination. We'll talk about uh, their campaigns in just a moment with our panel. Um, But um, we're going to also talk a little bit about a new CNN poll that on the Democratic side shows some strengths, but also some weaknesses for President Biden as uh, he gets set to launch more formally at some point this summer his campaign for the White House. There's a big uh, United States Supreme Court decision about wetlands that strips a little more power from the EPA. They did that already uh, last year in a ruling on uh, on the coal industry. This time, they um, went after uh, the wetlands uh, legislation that EPA was enforcing that will make it easier for people to build on what had been protected wetlands. We'll talk about that. And there's other uh, news that we can get to. But so let me introduce the panel quickly and start our conversation. Jim Galloway, former columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Thank you for being here, Jim. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation on a, on the eve of um, big Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate your taking some time to be with us with the weekend looming. Meg Kennard. Uh, the uh, national politics reporter for the Associated Press, one of the people who's covering campaigns, is back with us. Uh, Meg, uh, you're not going to get a whole lot of rest. You have two candidates to watch from your state alone because you're in Columbia, South Carolina. So you've got Tim Scott, who announced this week, and Nikki Haley. And of course, all of the Republicans, particularly, are heading to South Carolina. So they'll be visiting you in the weeks ahead, and I assume you'll be doing some traveling, too. I mean, let's be honest. There are worse states where one could have to live and chase after candidates all the time. I happen to think South Carolina is pretty great. And I often hear from all my colleagues all over the country, hey, when can we come help you with a lot of the coverage that you're doing there? So it's okay. I love living in South Carolina, and it's never a dull moment. Well, we're always glad when you give us time for a political rewind. Leo Smith uh, is with us. Leo's been a longtime uh, Georgia Republican. He has uh, worked on campaigns for Republican candidates. He at one point worked for the state Republican Party doing outreach to minority uh, groups. And now he is uh, he's the founder and uh, head of Engage Futures, a government relations firm. And uh, Leo, we're always happy to have you here, too. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me again, Bill. And now I'm focused on outreach to Republicans. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Dina Holiday Ingram is with us, the mayor of East Point. Um, And Dina, I saved you for last because whenever we have a mayor on the show, and you are a Democratic mayor, I want to give our listeners just a, a, a brief look 
at how things are going. What are the issues? What are the uh, news uh, stories that we should be paying attention to? How are things going in East Point right now? You know, things are going very well. Thank you so much, Bill. I always enjoy being on and having conversation with the amazing guests and you. Um, so great, glad to be here this morning. Things are going great in East Point. You know, we are really ripe for development and really focusing on our downtown area, our downtown quarter with a lot of transit-oriented development projects under in the works. Um, we also are strengthening our partnerships with MARTA and other key partners um, as it relates to how we grow and, and making sure that we grow equitably. You know, I always talk about health being our, our wealth and that being healthy is more than a size, it's a lifestyle. And so we have our Healthy Point 90-day initiative going on right now where we're offering amazing free classes to our residents, box fix, Zumba, bounce, some new class that I tried. And like, it was a really, you're really, look, it's a really great workout, but I was like, oh my goodness, am I going to make it? Fun times. Um, mental, and also trying to destigmatize mental health. So we had mental health classes or sessions for the whole community, right? Just really, we, I think a lot of times we make mental health and mental Ill illness synonymous, but we deserve, all deserve to have a healthy mind. And so really trying to make sure that that is a part of our health conversation as well and have a citywide compost um, program going on in partnership with Compost Now. And so really being able to help empower our residents to be able to comp bring compostable materials uh, items to four different locations throughout our city, then they will be aggregated through Compost Now and then first distributed to BIPOC farmers, um, but also available to the community. I think it's a really great way to help people understand that they have the power to really determine the type of food that is grown, right, and the type of soil to ensure that we have rich food um, for our community. You so you always food. have a lot. You you have a lot going on in East Point. Just one comment uh, that I'd love to get your response to. Obviously, East Point has a large black population. He health equity has been an issue throughout COVID, and we know there are health inequities that well stretched way back before COVID. So to hear you talking about the healthcare initiatives that you're taking on, I think is worth particular note right now. Well, thank you so much, Bill. You know, we All also right. started Let's... Office of oh, I'm okay. Okay. No, no, finish. No, we also launched our Office of Equity, Inclusion, and Empowerment, right? So that what all we learned during COVID is that a lot of people are in need and that we need to be able to continue to have the infrastructure to continue to support all of our residents. And so through this, we will be able to help and continue to empower our residents. All right. Well, we're really glad to have uh, the Zumba mayor. Tina Holiday Ingram uh, with us today. All right. Uh, all right, panel. Uh, let's go right to it. Let's talk about the rollouts this week of uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina uh, and Governor Ron DeSantis of uh, Florida. Uh, Meg, you know, let's start with Tim Scott, because you were at his campaign rollout, which he held at the college he's from which he graduated. And um, it was... Uh, I think it's fair to say Tim Scott at his best in terms of his sunny disposition, his ability to rouse a crowd uh, with powerful, uh, a powerful uh, speech. Um, what did you make of what you saw with the Tim Scott rollout? Tim Scott's biography 
is really important to his stump speech and the sort of speech that we've been hearing develop over the past months that he's been kind of trying out this presidential campaign before its official launch. And so, yeah, he was at his alma mater. He talks often about how North Charleston framed him as a person, helped him grow into the adult senator and now presidential candidate that we see. So I think a lot of what he's been trying to do with pieces of that, talking honestly about growing up as a member of the the working class poor, as he frames it, with a mother who worked long hours to take care of him and his brothers, a single mom, not being the best student, and really kind of feeling lost at some points until he had a mentor in his life who really helped him turn things around. I think he's using a lot of that to try to, to make an argument to voters, not just here, but everywhere look, I've struggled. I've had a lot of issues. I was able to overcome them, and I would like to be the president who can help you overcome them too. That's obviously a really optimistic message. He brings a lot of compassion and, frankly, energy into the way he delivers it. And it's been pretty well received, at least in terms of the times I've seen him on the stump. Obviously, this is his home state, so it's purportedly going to be a place where he has a little bit of a more friendly audience, maybe, than if he were you know, going into a state where people don't know him as well. But certainly, I think the overall message of Tim Scott's campaign thus far is optimism that America is on its way up, that I want to be the president to help you do that and to find ways to succeed for you personally. So uh, some voters, a lot of voters, frankly, are telling me that that's something that they like hearing. They're kind of tired of hearing doom and gloom and things are awful and look at the other side and how bad they are. And Tim Scott does do a lot of that, too, in terms of framing you know, what he sees from the Biden administration and things that he would like to change, certainly there. Um, but it is, it is a, a positive message overall that he's rolling out here in the beginning. Yeah, I think, Jim, it's fair to say that there's something of the Reagan-esque, uh, it's morning, uh, again, in America, messaging from uh, back in the mid-'80s. But, Jim, let me read to you and then let the rest of the panel also weigh in on uh, <laughs> a couple lines from Jonathan Martin's piece in Politico about the Tim Scott rollout. I thought he wrote a really funny uh, 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 description of what happened. He said there was a literative call and response. There was entering the crowd at the end. There were testimonials to America's greatness. There was the gospel of Jesus Christ, self-help, and the power of positive thinking. And here's the line, Jim, that I love. It was the black church meets the megachurch set to a Lee Greenwood, Thomas Jefferson soundtrack while Jack Kemp and Ronald Reagan smiled down from above over a Chick-fil-A lunch. <laughs> that's that, that yeah that that sums it up uh very well i, I think this is i, I think makes very much for, uh, on point here i mean uh tim scott is selling optimism you know and 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 can you can you sell optimism in 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 this this climate the the other thing the other point and, and you kind of alluded to it there is is his, his alma mater, uh, he, he made he made the announcement at his, at his college alma mater uh it is a southern baptist uh, affiliated institution, and you, you, you wonder. Clearly, he's he's making a bid for 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 uh, white the white evangelical vote, and I'm not sure whether whether white evangelicals can be persuaded by religion anymore. Straight <laughs> up and up religion. Uh, uh, the, the other thing, I, eventually, uh, I, I know we got we've got to hear from from Leo and and and, and the mayor. But I'd like to hear uh, from Meg about what the what the power balance is between Tim Scott and Nikki Haley 
in South Carolina. Because well, how we, much time do you have, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, certainly I've written about this several times, and it's obviously an undercurrent in a lot of the coverage of the South Carolina primary writ large in each of these candidates. They were both elected statewide several times at about the same time in South Carolina. And so not just in a presidential race, but in a state that holds the first GOP votes in the South and is therefore considered to be a, an important early state, there's there's a, a bit of a conflict among their supporters. Um, obviously, Tim Scott has, is the most recent entrant um, to come from this state. Nikki Haley launched in February, and so she kind of had her arc of attention. And, you know, oh, this is this is the, a candidacy that we're excited about and got a couple of news cycles and certainly has continued to campaign going to other early states. And, you know, so this week there's been more focus around here on Tim Scott since he is the newer official entrant. But it is interesting when you look at these candidates and it's not just the voters in this state. OK, well, yeah, you know, we've we've voted for both of these um, candidates. They're both Republicans. You know, she appointed him to the Senate. Um, they've, they've got an intrinsic relationship there. They've shared consultants at a time. They have shared donors at times. And so, yeah, there it's it's a weird, um, a weird situation for sure. I can't think of a really a better way to frame it. Um, Tim Scott's team, his advisors argue that he comes into this race with so much money left over from his Senate campaign in 2022 when he didn't really spend a lot of it because he didn't have a, a super strong Democratic opponent. Um, so they argue that he's got enough money to really go on air, to stay on air, to continue making a splash. He's got a lot of wealthy donors who are willing to support him again, as they have in cycles past. So that's their argument, saying that he comes into this in a more of a position of power, so to speak, over her and, and some of the other candidates in the race, too. I, th I think he's got more than $20 million available as he starts his uh, campaign, actually. Leo, let me bring you in as the Republican today on the panel. Um, he, it's interesting, uh, and, and I'm really curious what your thoughts are on this. Um, first of all, Tim Scott had John Thune, uh, the second-ranking Republican in the U.S. Senate, with him at the announcement, uh, which uh, says a lot about how popular Tim Scott is in the United States Senate. He's very well thought of. We know uh, there Mitch McConnell has praised him, repeatedly said that he appreciates the Scott candidacy. He hasn't endorsed him. But um, the question becomes whether the Republican base, Leo, really is looking for a Reagan-esque figure or whether or not they are more persuaded by the recrimination and revenge campaign, essentially, of a Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's an important question, and that's the opportunity we have really both with Nikki Haley as well as uh, Tim Scott to see how the Republicans will respond first in South Carolina, how they'll respond here in Georgia. Uh, do they want that 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 normalized rhetoric back in reasoned uh, discussion of policy in the future for America? Um, do they really want that? And th that's what this candidacy um, really offers. And I think journalism, you've been doing some great episodes, some great podcasts on journalism and its impact on democracy, what they expect, what they will pay attention to. I mean, there's going to be sort of a governor on, uh, no pun intended, Nikki Haley, a governor, but a sort of other type of governor um, between Haley and Scott and creating that sort of more positive rhetorical competition. Tim Scott already said that he's not going to sling dirt. Um, so 
is, is really going to be interesting to see how both Republican base as well as journalists pay attention to those people. I know Meg will be doing a great job, but I hope the rest of the journalistic field will pay more attention to the sensible arguments that they're making rather than some of the nonsensical stuff that some of the Republican uh, attention grabbers are trying to achieve. I hosted Tim uh, in February, no, January of, um, no, it was February. February was Black History Month in 20, uh, what, 15? Um, as uh, he, he was came here, I think it was one of his first speeches in Georgia. The room was packed. People responded well to him. His subject was an opportunity agenda, which he then went on to work on that. So he's a person of substance, a senator of substance, not just the first Black American senator for South Carolina, but I mean, really had an impact on creating a governor on Donald Trump as he engaged with him about prison reform and opportunity zones and things like that. So I'm really, really rooting for a positive. I'm not saying I'm endorsing Tim Scott. What I'm saying is, is that there's an opportunity to normalize the Republican base with these, with Scott and Haley. Dina, of course, he is the only black Republican in the United States Senate. Um, and there are those who believe that he might be able to attract uh, some black voters uh, during his uh, campaign moving forward. What's your take on whether or not he creates a more welcoming image of the Republican Party for uh, black voters? Yeah, I, I yeah I'm, I'm sorry, Dina. Go. No, no. <laughs> Go yeah, Dina. Let me get your take, please. Okay. Um. Yeah. I. You know, whenever I I see people um focus on or think that race is a sole factor for people to make decisions, it's amazing to me and also comical, right? Um. Zora Neale Hurston said it best: "All my skin folk ain't my kin folk, right?" And as blacks in America, like we know that extremely well. And so, you know, I, I hear a lot of salesmanship and we also all know that in the general election, a lot of people don't vote party lines. And so this message of we shall overcome and I overcame and I can help you too. I mean, mm. you know, that's kind of trying to appeal, I think, to a cross-sectional voters. But like, what are your policies? What do you believe? Right. So, you know, we can or do you support banning books, but not banning assault rifles? Right. Um, what, what's your stand on ensuring that there's universal health care? What about housing and the middle income of housing crisis that's in this country or just housing affordability for everyone? And so, you know, it is a lot of theatrics, I think, at this point. But I think people undermine. Um, blacks in this country or people in color that, in, in this country and think just because someone is black, we're going to be like, oh, yes, this is amazing. No, I mean, what are you going to do for everyone? And I, I mean, I think the Democratic policies often are, is more like we're for all, right? This is about helping all. Mm. I, it's going to be interesting to see how he, as if he's trying to, you know, walk the black card and, you know, we shall all overcome what that really means when we start looking at his platform and his policies. Will, will it really Jim, be about well, all of us or just some of us? I apologize for interrupting you at the end there, Dina. Jim, uh, let's do a little reality check here. Uh, virtually every national poll shows Donald Trump far ahead of every other contestant who is uh, either announced or looking at announcing in, for the Republican uh, nomination. Um, but it is fascinating that South Carolina, as uh, Meg has uh, uh, told us, has a female candidate for Republican nomination as well as an African-American candidate for the Republican nomination. That, um, and as as Dina points out, um, 
Certainly, Tim Scott is very, very conservative. It isn't as if he's even a moderate Republican. Uh, and yet, this is kind of a new face for the Republican Party coming out of South Carolina. Yeah, and and and, and I think, uh, uh, Meg, you correct me if I'm wrong. I used to know the the, the, the calendar like the back of my hand, the, the, the primary calendar. But after after South Carolina, you go immediately to Iowa, right? Or is um, that Iowa precede? Iowa's first. Iowa comes first. Okay, Iowa precedes. Okay, all right. So you've got, you've got, you've got, I don't think Tim Scott's going to do very well in Iowa. Uh, that's just, a, I mean, just, that's just based on the demographics. And, and it, 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 I'll be, I'll be interested to see if, 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 if Nikki Haley can do very well going in, in, in Iowa and then comes to South Carolina and, and performs uh, uh, even better. I think that's, that's more of a leg up. I think that's a, a more realistic uh uh, 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 approach there. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's part of the reason why you're seeing both of those candidates and obviously, you know, Ron DeSantis, who we'll talk about a little bit, actually launching his campaign in Iowa. They know the importance of that state. For Tim Scott, it's going to be trying to make connections with a lot of evangelical voters because his faith and his faith background is paramount to him and his campaign. I wrote one of those, like, here's what you need to know about Tim Scott pieces, you know, if you're just now tuning in. And faith was literally at the top of that because it is important to him. And I think he speaks about it from a genuine standpoint. So, yeah, it's South Carolina is great. It's their home state. They've got lots of support and background here. But Iowa is where it starts for Republicans. And the field knows that. And they know that as long as the voting there goes well and smoothly, which we didn't see with Democrats, particularly in 2020. But as long as that works, whoever wins Iowa comes out of it with a lot of media attention and bounce into the states that follow. And they know that. And that's why they're focusing very hard on it right now. All right. Um, so we're going to watch Tim Scott again. He is very he is, you know, registers very little in polling right now. But let's be fair. Uh, he's just launched his campaign. As Meg points out, he's got a lot of money in the bank to begin uh, 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 an advertising campaign that will certainly follow uh, uh, through the primary season. So we'll wait and see uh, just how he uh, does as we move forward. Um, let's move on to Ron DeSantis. And, you know, there are a lot of ways we can talk about the Ron DeSantis launch. And Jim, I, I think to start, I'd like to stipulate, and I think you'll all agree, if somebody disagrees, please let me know. The launch of a campaign, the announcement speech, is not necessarily um, going to either secure the nomination or guarantee you lose the nomination based on whether it goes well or not. Uh, Kamala Harris is a great example of that. When she launched her presidential campaign, she had a spectacular role, uh, 20,000 people came to cheer her on, and yet she dropped out before the primaries even uh, really got underway. So that said, you really can't use a word other than, I think, disastrous for the rollout of Ron DeSantis's campaign. He decided, as we all know now, to do a conversation in a very untried forum, Twitter space, with Elon Musk. The uh, that it didn't work well. There were some 500,000 people waiting for the event to begin. They had technical difficulties. You could hear um, conversation back and forth, essentially off mic as they were trying to get things up and running. Um, and, and there are a lot of people 
some of whom are DeSantis backers who are scratching their heads about why the heck he decided to start the campaign that way, Jim. Yeah, yeah, and look, even if it even if it went magically well, which it didn't, uh, the, the strangeness of this is why you would make a campaign announcement in, the, in this in this era on audio only, just with with with, with sound. This was that there was no video attached to this. Uh, there would be some still photos coming around, but there there was no video. And you've got look, you've got both Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis have something in common. Uh, other than their political interests, and that is a certain stiffness of, of personality. And uh, I don't know if the people on on the radio on on, on our, our listeners know it, but you know, it, if you if you can't convey a a, a a a a winning personality on video, you are far less likely to do so when it's audio only. Uh, you, you can't smile. You can't. You 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 can't wave. You can't. You can't uh, uh, give the victory sign. So it's 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 a it, it was it was a very very empty launch in my in, in my point of view. Uh, Leo, it, it 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 while it is certainly true that you can have a bad launch and still perform well uh, in in the primary season that uh, comes ahead. Um, sometimes. The way a launch goes may underline what people are already thinking about a particular candidate. And in DeSantis's case, there are a number of people who have seen signs that he may not be quite ready for prime time. And this Twitter uh, debacle uh, may have reinforced some of the concerns out there for potential donors and voters that DeSantis isn't quite ready uh, to be on the national stage. What's your take on that? You know, over the years, I've intensely observed several presidential candidates up close and personal even. And I had that experience with DeSantis at um, Adventure Outdoors here in Smyrna. I was front row right there next to him as he spoke. He has charisma. Uh, Some of this idea that he's not going to be good with media, I just don't really buy. I know that he's been difficult towards traditional journalism. And therefore, I think um, there seems to be some biting (laughs) um, remarks related to him because he tends to punt on traditional journalism access. And I just hope that people aren't holding that as a grudge towards DeSantis and not giving him a fair shake. The media uh, presentation through Twitter was in the way that it absolutely allows as a sound stage. Um, And he had a prefabricated sort of speech on there. It was a circle drawing and it was not a line drawing. In other words, he was pulling in another audience, which kind of coincides with must objectives as well. Um, there is no doubt that more MAGA sort of Trump followers have rejoined Twitter um, with Musk um, coming on as uh, the owner. And now Musk has shown that he's going to you know, give political chops to that. So this is sort of a product positioning kind of moment. To me, this was nothing but positive for um, DeSantis. And People who listen to those kinds of uh, presentations through social media, social audio, they expect to see to, to have some little quirks and some little hiccups once in a while. In these, uh, you know, I've been very active on something called Clubhouse, and that that Twitter uh, room sort of sort of duplicated in a way. And so, I think this was a positive presentation from DeSantis. Um, I want to get um, uh, Meg and Dina involved in this conversation, but we're already late for our first break. A lot more to talk about with Ron DeSantis, and we'll do that in just a moment. 
Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Quick program note, um, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McKee, Victoria Evans-Cash, and uh, Buddha, our new engineer, we're all going to join you by taking Memorial Day off. So on Monday, um, NPR will uh, fill our space with a political program, and we'll be back with a live show again on Tuesday. So I hope we all have a restful and enjoyable Memorial Holiday uh, weekend. Uh, East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram. Leo Smith, Jim Galloway, Meg Kennard from AP with us. Meg, one of the things that was interesting about the Ron DeSantis rollout is here he is, the great culture warrior in this race, attacking DEI, attacking transgender uh, people, um, all of the things uh, that um, his his attacks on um, CRT, critical race theory. But none of that was what he went to in his announcement campaign. And in fact, one of the things that he's been criticized for was this kind of wonky approach he made to talking about issues. He talked about what he called woke banking, whatever that is. He talked about the accreditation cartel, talking about college accreditation. He talked about regulation of cryptocurrency. And and I think this is another reason some people are saying, what are you going to talk about when you get out there on the campaign trail, Governor DeSantis? Yeah. And some of those issues you just mentioned, right, this was kind of like, oh, this is just going to be a conversation between Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk, because those are, you know, especially like crypto and those kinds of things. I would assume to hear Musk and like the Twitterverse kind of talking about some of that. Um, You know, I I was part of both Twitter spaces that Ron DeSantis did Mm. the first, which was kind of this 20 minute glitchy. We don't know what we're hearing thing. (laughs) And then ultimately, when they reconfigured it, and he went on for at least 30 minutes or so talking about a lot of what you mentioned, it was it was interesting to me because it did feel in large part to start off with just like a a campaign speech um, on a lot of these issues. And it had been kind of advertised as more of a, oh, okay, this will be more touchy feely Q&A. And it did get into some of that. But, you know, I, I felt like I was hearing the speech that I've heard DeSantis give, you know, before of like just standing up and giving his Florida blueprint for a lot of things. But I think in, in the aftermath of this, with all the tech issues and, and a lot of the, the things that happened the other day, um, I, I think there's been a lot of reading into it and kind of seeing what you want from it. Because on on one side, there has was a lot of critique and criticism like, wow, this is a disaster and this went so horribly and what an embarrassment. Ron DeSantis raised more than $8 million after this launch. So I don't think that anybody could really portray that as disastrous. And he also was able to then pivot into a slew of media interviews, mostly radio, um, talking, you know, getting further like, okay, now I'm a candidate. Let me talk about these things. And in those media interviews, he's doing something that reporters like me have been wanting to see and hear from him for months. And now that he's an official candidate, he's doing it. And that's making a contrast with Donald Trump. That's what voters Mm -hmm. have really been interested to see. How is he going to be different? How's his campaign going to be different? And in all of that, 
Ron DeSantis has been able to try to frame Donald Trump as the more left-wing candidate as opposed to him, to try yeah. to center himself in conservative, oh, I voted against an omnibus bill. Trump didn't like that. He must be too liberal for you. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> and so the fact that he was able to leverage into that, um, the DeSantis campaign has got to be feeling pretty good about how that went. Yeah, thanks for pointing out that despite the disastrous uh, tw Twitter space uh, uh, feed, uh, you're right. He did raise a lot of money, and his now his campaign is now officially launched, and he is beginning, Dina, to make the contrast with Donald Trump. And there are, of course, those Democrats who worry that while Donald Trump may not be able to beat uh, Joe Biden for uh, the White House, um, that Ron DeSantis uh, very well uh, could. Dina? Um, I'm not that optimistic about that. I think, you know, yeah, raising $8 million after the debacle. I mean, there's this concept of the church of the funds. People will follow anyone, right? So like everyone's going to have a following. People are going to be able to raise money. But, you know, the the love, I'm a native Floridian. Let's just start there. And um, the level of inhumanity that is displayed by DeSantis is just reprehensible to me. Like there, I've literally seen things about a travel ban in Florida for LGBTQIA and black and people of color. Like that's a problem. Um, and that's extremely concerning. I don't know if it was true or whether it was just stuff that people were putting out, but there's their level of fear. Um, I talked to my family members and people that are still in Florida, like the way that he's leading Florida to me is absolutely not a way to lead a country. And I, I just think, you know, Hopefully, and I think we saw it in the last election, I don't think the majority of Americans want that. Whether he would be, uh, you know, a more competitive person against Biden, I mean, that remains to be seen. I, I believe he and Trump are one of the same. They play from the same playbook. And trying to distinguish himself from Trump is laughable. I, I do want to say, Leo, I, I'm not aware of anything uh, in the news about a travel ban in Florida that relates to LGBTQ uh, individuals. It sounds like the sort of thing that might have gotten out there on social media. And I'm glad we're glad to fact check it to see if there's anything out there. But why don't we give you the last word on DeSantis for right now before we move on? No, fact-checking DeSantis is going to be extremely important because one of the things that he does is that he incites uh, such an emotional response with all the re rhetoric and the grenades thrown about culture issues. But then the law that's being exacted in Florida might look more you know, moderate than what you're hearing. And so people sometimes are making assumptions about what's actually happening in Florida when it comes to book banning or when it comes to you know, shutting down HBCUs. All these rumors are floating around because people are emotionally responding, which you know, is heightened enough there that that's reasonable. But we really have to work hard on fact-checking, correct, that the NAACP expressed a lot of concern about things happening in Florida, but they have not exacted a travel ban as far as uh, the research well, that I've done. But, but Natalie did just whisper in my ear that it is the NAACP, uh, Dina, that issued an advisory expressing concern about whether there was going to be some sort of travel. We'll, we'll just watch that and see how it um, uh, um, moves forward. Um, Jim, let's turn to the other side of the aisle, to uh, President Biden, if we could, for a few minutes. CNN released a poll late yesterday afternoon. And um, it had good news and bad news for Joe Biden. So let's unpack it just a bit. I'll start with the top line. Uh, Joe Biden 
attracted uh, among respondents 60 percent of the vote for the Democratic nomination. I, I think we can have a conversation about whether uh, that's as much as it ought to be for a, an incumbent who has no major opposition. But uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. got 20 percent in that same poll. Um, and I think a lot of that, in fact, the CNN poll suggests that much of that is based simply on his name. Jim, start us off on the poll. Yeah, I, I, I was trying to come up with a single word that, that would describe it. And, and I'm torn between acquiescence and resignation. Uh, that, 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 that Joe Biden is kind of everyone's second choice. Uh, in, in 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 a way, uh, his 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 job approval rating is I, I you correct me if I'm wrong is something like thirty six thirty seven. His disapproval rating was 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 fifty seven. Uh, the, the CNN poll compared that with Obama, uh, the, with the current uh, favorable unfavorable o- Obama, and it was just exactly flipped, fifty seven percent approval, you know, and thirty three percent disapproval. Uh, so, uh, uh, and then you get then, then they toss, and this is where where it gets very interesting. They tossed in Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, and both Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter were in the low forties uh, as far as uh, favorability goes. So, you know, I, part of me says that this is this is this is what this is the product of a very very partisan climate. That you're not going, you're not going to see people with 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 huge approval numbers uh, at, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I th- but I think you know right now I, I don't I, I think it's eh, a, a, a May poll for just a meh kind of thing for Joe Biden. Uh, it, it it shows him in a strong position. It's not an overwhelming position. Uh, one of the more uh, intriguing things uh, about that poll is. That uh, what would be the, re- the, the the poll the poll asked uh, what would be the result if, if Joe Biden were reelected, uh, and I think you tell uh, I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Bill, it said something like sixty some odd percent said it it would be it would be terrible or a disaster, and only fifty six yeah, percent said the same thing. Donald Trump. Yeah, let me thank you, uh, Meg. Let me uh, ask you to weigh in on this as well at this point. So. In fact, Biden's approval numbers are at 35 percent in the CNN poll, down five points from uh, January, a bad position from which to launch a uh, presidential campaign. Um, And yes, uh, people were asked if Joe Biden is reelected, what would it mean for the country? And 66 percent, as Jim pointed out, called it either a disaster or a setback, whereas for Trump, the numbers were uh, 56%. So neither of them do very well. Um, but your thoughts on on this kind of polling? And it's early, Meg. Of course, it is early. And a lot of what we see, obviously, with any polling is a snapshot in time of, you know, someone assessing their own personal situation and thinking, okay, well, how much of this can I attribute to whoever may be the leader right now or potentially the leader next year or the year after? And Oftentimes, what we see and hear from candidates at these kind of like macro level campaign events 
are these casting forward of big picture policies and ideas and issue areas that they would work on if they were in the White House. And what we hear from voters are far more personal concerns, specific lately and probably all the time to personal finance in their family situation and how are they doing and do we have a a good job situation and, and do I feel secure and things like that. So when you have an incumbent president and the economy has been going through the the big ups and downs that it has of late, that's top of mind for a lot of people, regardless of what the candidates are talking about and culture issues. And yes, those factor in too. But oftentimes when it's that personal assessment of how am I doing, um, it goes back to issues related to the economy and things on a little bit more micro level than that. So that could play into certainly what we're seeing. And if there are voters out there who are remembering back to you know, perhaps a period of economic stability during the Trump administration and thinking, well, that was actually working pretty well for me. You know, that might be kind of what they're casting forward in terms of, okay, well, you know, under a next level of administration, how would I be doing? Um, Dina, look, let's be candid about this. Um, Biden is uh, now the president of the United States. He is determined to run for reelection. He is old. And I think it's very safe to say there are many Democrats who look at his age, look at the fact that there are times when just his physical presence is not as strong, perhaps, as you'd like it to be. Um, and so they're worried. Um, at the same time, he has accomplished a lot in office that um, the administration can point to and the campaign can point to with pride. But it, the approval numbers don't suggest that they're doing a very good job Uh, messaging on all that he's accomplished. Yeah, you know, polling is always interesting to me. The first question that comes to mind, like, who responded, right? Like, who are the people that responded is very early. Um, And I I think that's something that we don't talk a lot about. You know, ageism for anyone is a concern. I mean, Trump isn't that spry. He's not a young whippersnapper himself, right? So like when we talk about age, I mean, if we're looking at either Biden or Trump, I mean, it's, it's the same con- concern. Or, I mean, this, they're around the same age. Let me say it that way. Um, I think, you know, what Meg said is really um, important. People want to know what what's in it for me. What what have you done? So like the, the thing about um, Biden and Trump, they have both served in this office. So you don't get to say, I'm going to do and just focus on what I'm going to. You have to say, this is what I've done. And people are going to want to hear, um, and, and not only hear, they have to have experienced it, right? Like, what have it, how has this benefited me? Um, there has been a lot of things that this administration has accomplished, and it's really going to be about that record and making sure that every person understands what that has meant for them. Or and or whether they feel that it has not meant something or not, they is really going to be about the record, what they're going to do. And you know, I think the ageism is is a distraction. I think really, um, President Biden has proven his ability to lead and and for a number of decades. Um, and as as that definitely as a president of the United States, and people is really going to be about his record. Leo, uh, I got to get to a final break, but I want to get you in for a moment here. Uh, you know, um, uh, Dina pointed out that right now they're doing a major transit project. They're really doing a lot of infrastructure work in East Point at the start of the show. Uh, Janice and I were in Northern California a few weeks ago. There are highway projects everywhere. My own neighborhood, we have new sewers coming in and the like. And I'm assuming 
that a great deal of the work that people are seeing everywhere in terms of infrastructure is a result of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the amount of federal money that poured into communities to help with that. And yet, and yet, it doesn't feel as if Biden has uh, figured out a way to leverage that to his advantage with voters. Again, plenty of time to do it, but will he? Well, I'm not so sure he has much time. He needs to be capturing that story, not in a way that says, you know, I've sent this much money to states for infrastructure development, but, and you can't even do what uh, 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 Vice President Harris did here, where wait for his infrastructure monies to start having an impact on your life. People just aren't that patient. So the challenge is going to be, how do you get people to feel the presence of that those resources now. And some of that is an implementation problem. Uh, we know that the White House actually skipped some governors around the country that were Republican-led and direct funded municipalities and, and you know, and uh, you know, areas where they felt they were more Democrat-led. But the problem with that is that those areas have had a hard time implementing um, you know, those, those, those infrastructure monies in a way that speaks to black and poor's pocketbooks. And that is the challenge that the Biden, the Democrats have to really kind of do what Mayor Ingram and Meg are talking about, be present in people's pockets. And there's no doubt that people felt the impact of Trump's presidential leadership economically. But the pain is felt in a different way with Biden. And that's a real thing. All right, I gotta get to a final break in the show today, but we'll be back with more in just a moment. Jim Galloway, June's just about a week or so away, and we're going to start seeing major rulings from the United States Supreme Court rolled out in the weeks ahead. But we already got an important ruling yesterday um, when the uh, in a 5-4 decision, which is interesting, it wasn't the typical 6-3 split between the conservatives and the more liberal justices. The court limited the Environmental Protection Agency's authority over wetlands. Um, that's a major story here in Georgia, of course. And what they said was that EPA had essentially um, overextended the areas that ought to be protected by the Clean Water Act, saying, yes, if you have land that's contiguous to a body of water, uh, the protections that, that prevent the kind of erosion uh, that can be harmful to, uh, to, the, to the lake, the river, the stream, that's important but that EPA had gone too far by uh, also protecting lands that do not have any direct contiguous relationship to a body of water. And uh, Alito wrote the uh, decision, and um, he said, essentially, it resolved nagging questions over the outer boundaries, which the vague language Congress used to define its scope uh, in terms of protecting waters of the United States. And I bring it up on this show because Chris Carr was one of the attorney generals who uh, went to battle to uh, uh, get the uh, Clean Water Act at least uh, modified. Right. And what, what they, the, the, the Supreme Court has just kind of redefined what a waterway is. Uh, and yeah. basically for, for, I think, some 40 years that the, the court has judged that, that that includes wetlands and marshlands. And now now it does not. And... Uh, 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 you, you've got uh, you've got in, in, in Georgia, you've got uh, 
uh, Georgia's agricultural community uh, just uh, 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 praising this decision to high heavens because it opens more 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 property to 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 farming uh, and, and also development. Uh, but you also have to remember that Georgia is a state of marshlands. I mean, we have yeah. <coughs> excuse me, we have it. We, we have this 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 whole ecosystem on the coast that uh, that feeds our the shrimp industry feeds the tourist industry and you have to uh, you, we have not heard those voices yet and i want to see where where long term where republicans come down on this because it does affect business it does affect the economy uh, meg uh it's fascinating i think five four brett kavanaugh uh, went with the more liberal justices, and he said that he thinks the overly narrow test may leave long regulated and long accepted to be regulated wetlands suddenly beyond the scope of the regulatory authority, and there may be negative consequences for water in the United States. But, but Meg, the larger issue here is that this is another example of the Supreme Court trying to reduce the power of EPA. They did the same thing in their ruling that... Um, uh, uh, weakened the powers of EPA to oversee the coal industry, for example. And this is the kind of thing that we've heard from some critics of the court as it's in its current composition. You know, let's expect more of this. We're going to be seeing more of this conservative leaning court kind of going back to issues that perhaps had seemed like they had been set and taking another look. And especially when it comes to regulatory schemes, you know, on behalf of conservatives who would argue against perhaps more regulation, handing them a win and saying, well, you know, these are other ways that we can try to, to get back into these issues. So it's certainly a, a narrow decision from the court, an interesting one when you look at the justices who composed it. Um, but yeah, this is this is something that affects, you know, so many different places, Georgia and other areas throughout the southeast with a lot of these marshy wetland type areas. And there are a lot of people who are upset by what this could mean. Um, we'll see how it plays out. Leo, uh, Kavanaugh has been pretty interesting. I mean, there's no question he's one of the con most, more conservative justices on the court. Um, he certainly um, uh, was one who contributed to the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, for instance. But as they roll out their decisions uh, in June, it's going to be interesting to see where he falls on some issues because he's shown some degree of independence. No, he has. And that was part of some of the, uh, when he was uh, being reviewed, um, there was some consideration that he was moderate on some issues. And I think environmental concerns is one of them. But I think that the larger issue here, as far as SCOTUS goes, is really we're seeing consistency in this sort of return to federalism, this idea of two levels of government, one federal, one you know, national, and one local. And, and we've seen that as, as it relates to the Roe Wade issue. I think this is consistently uh, looking at making states more in control of what happens with their industry and their ability to develop an economic presence uh, worldwide. It, I mean, Kemp in Israel I, is part of that, too. Leo, I'm running out of time, and I want Dina Holiday-Ingram to weigh in. You've got about 20, 30 seconds, Dina, to say, does this have an impact on you in East Point? Yeah, I mean, climate change is real. Environmental pollution is pervasive, right? Like, so wetlands actually help curb um, flooding and pollution and filter pollution. And this is going to be a place where maybe we will have to intervene locally. All right. Dina Holiday Ingram gets the last word in political rewind. We're right down to the wire on today's show. So thank you, Mayor Leo Smith, Meg Kennard and Jim Galloway. Um, thank you all for listening this week. We're going to take Monday off, but we're back on 
Tuesday, so have a great Memorial Day weekend. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody.